as writers and creators, we suffer from imposter syndrome and self-loathing and all that sort of stuff. But we also, there has to come a moment where we have to say, look, either you want this or you don't. Welcome to We Can Print This, a podcast telling the story you don't know behind the story you do. Well, my name is Fiona McCann. And my name is Eden Dawn. And every week we interview a writer of some kind or other about the stories behind their stories. And if you like our podcast, please do us a favor and tell a friend who you think might like it. Or you can also support us on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. So go to patreon.com forward slash we can print this and empty your wallet. Thank you. <laughs> this week is our season two finale. Pew, 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 pew. We are taking a little break for the holidays. We will have out some fun bonus episodes and things for you, so don't fret. But this is our season two finale, and we have the one, the only, David Walker. Mm-hmm. David is an award-winning comic book writer, filmmaker, journalist, educator, and writer of Shaft, a complicated man. And he has also worked for DC and Marvel Comics on such titles as Luke Cage, Power Man, Iron Fist, and and Deadpool. Yeah, you might have heard of that one. And he also wrote the forthcoming YA novel, The Second Chance of Darius Logan. And that is what we're going to talk to him all about today. And one of the things, Eden, that I thought was interesting about this whole conversation, he spoke about the sort of vagaries of the publishing world. And I think we've kind of been made aware of that somewhat over the years that timing is everything in publishing. And you might, for example, come along with a wizard book at a time when they're like, nobody's reading wizard books. Yeah. Why are we talking about the wizard book? Or, for example, and I kind of get this, I was thinking about this a lot because post-pandemic, it, I remember hearing like, don't come to me with your post-apocalyptic novel right now. And oh I was God. like, I, yeah, I didn't want to read that, those kind of works. I didn't want to read The Road when it came out. <laughs> and, yet, and then the idea of somebody reading it during the pandemic. So yeah, we are, the publishing industry is also just an extension of humanity in some ways. So it seems logical that there would be trends, but it is weird that though, then authors are a little bit subject to what publishing thinks is going on in the world. Yeah, and I think sometimes I just imagine a bunch of publishers like licking their fingers and sticking them up in the wind. So yeah, no, it is kind of interesting to me, A, because all these publishers are trying to imagine what people's appetites will be in a couple of years because there's a quite a lot, know. you know, it takes a while for books to come out. And so I think every now and again, something comes out a book comes out that's like a surprise hit and then they're suddenly all in on that genre, whatever it is. Like, oh. Because they're trying to ride the wave. It's very similar in fashion. It's probably similar in music as well of a thing where you're like, this is really popular. We want to be the person to ride this wave because if you can catch the crest of a trend wave is how you succeed. And if you're too early, which David talks to us about, then people are like, Mm-mm, there's no wave to ride. We can't do this. And if you're too late, and then it's like, no, we already missed it. It's already it, happened. It's sort of frustrating, though, because you can imagine that somebody like David talks about a book that in a way could have created the wave. I feel like in that moment, it could have started a wave, but it sounds like publishers, they're always waiting for someone else to kind of take the risk first, and then they'll 
Yeah, so then somebody has to take the risk. And who is going to be the publisher or the person to do it? And is it self-published people? And then somebody sees that that does well. We talked to Rosemary McCabe in that episode about how she did kind of a crowdfunding publishing route. Um, it, It is, I have heard this from authors over and over of people saying, that book, we could have done great with that two years ago or six years ago. But like that moment has passed. And the other thing I think that uh, I've been made more aware of in recent times is that agents or publishers may be interested in a certain type of book, but might already, for example, an agent might be like, I already have a book that's exactly in this genre that I'm trying to sell. So I don't know if I want to take on another one right now until I sell the first one. So when you're shopping a book around and you're like, oh, look, this is you know, this is this fantasy dragon series I've just created. And they're like, oh my gosh, I already have a fantasy dragon series in my stable. I can't really take a second one and try and sell two. So I think a lot of it depends not just on timing, not just on the this finger in the wind, but also, you know, what what does a an agent already have in their stable? What does a publisher already have in right. their stable? What is like so many factors. But then the interesting thing about that, Fiona, which, cause I think you're hundred percent right, but also in a book proposal, which I have made, you are, you submit competitive title analysis. You're like, my book looks like these books that exist by these types of authors. And then very specifically, so the publisher, if for some reason they don't know those books, can look up and go, this is how this book sold. This is how this book did. So they're trying to see how viable your idea is. And that's interesting to me because if you're trying to have a revolutionary idea, which, you know, David's YA series, as we'll get into, is something we hadn't seen, doesn't exist in the industry and needs to. But if you have the revolutionary idea, how do you have a competitive title? How do you, you don't have the data to prove that it will sell. Yeah, you can't, you can't be like, you're like, I'm breaking new ground here. And they don't always want to take a risk on that. So sometimes I think one of the lessons from it was just that, you know, you can have a pretty amazing book. And if publishers aren't willing to take a risk or the timing doesn't feel right for them for whatever reason, they might turn you down, even though you've written something extraordinary. Yeah. And it means also, again, in this case, of not giving up on a piece. Yeah. You know, because it might honestly be the timing and not you. In many ways, it's like any other relationship, you know, where it's like two great people might meet each other. But if they're already, one's just been broken up with and one's moving across the, like it might not work, but then at a certain other time in their lives, come together fireworks. So to sum it up, publishing is like a romantic relationship. I feel like that's a good metaphor for everything with you. You're like, this is like a romantic relationship. I mean, most things are. Yeah, and timing is everything. But also don't be disheartened if you get 10 million rejections. We all know the stories of very well-known authors who got millions of rejections. And it does sound like the key is perseverance. Perseverance. With that, over to David. I wanted to start today maybe with just... Talking a little bit about where you started in the writing world, because I know that's going to have bearing on the story you're going to tell us today. And we love a journalism backstory. You know, that is who we are in our hearts forever and ever. Yeah. So, you know, I I started in very much the DIY world. I I had a zine back in the 90s. And for those that don't know what a zine was, it was kind of like a podcast or a blog before there were podcasts and blogs. 
Plus scrapbook. Meet yeah. scrapbook. It's meet scrapbook, exactly. I always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer. First and foremost, I wanted to make comic books. And, but I got, really, I got really serious about writing in high school. And then, but in college, I ended up going to art school to study to be a comic book artist and failed miserably. <laughs> um, but rather than give up, I just decided to focus all my attention towards writing and, you know, sort of had this attitude of like, well, I don't need to finish college. I don't need to graduate. I can just do this. And so, you know, started writing all the time. And, and then in the 90s during, you know, it was really this heyday of a lot of great zines and also some really terrible zines. I'm not going to name either. <laughs> I was going to ask. I was going to ask. I love zines. I love a zine. Well, you know, the, the best ones were like there was uh, Maximum Rock and Roll and there was Giant Robot and there was uh, a magazine called Bitch. Uh, and all of these like really inspired me. But then the bad ones inspired me even more. <laughs> I love that. I can do this. Anybody can do this, right? Yeah, look at the state of these. Yeah. And and so I, I started publishing um, a zine called Badass Mofo in the mid-90s. <laughs> Great name. That's my nickname. <laughs> it's, uh, well, the, you we can share it. I don't mind sharing Yay, it. Yay, so. great. We'll both be badass mofos. Um, and that, that, that took off in a lot of ways. And it led to a lot of freelance work at publications, mostly hip-hop publications like Rap Pages, uh, but also Giant Robot, which was a pop culture magazine. It was It focused primarily on, like, Asian pop culture and kung fu movies and things like that. And um, these are some deep cuts. <laughs> also, did you feel very, very cool? I always feel like everyone who made a zine, I thought, was just like the upper echelon of cool. <laughs> and I feel like they never considered themselves cool. I didn't consider myself cool that much, but I did feel like, oh, I found a place for myself. Right. Yeah. Like I never quite felt like I belonged in a lot of places. And at that point, like every job I had. When I started Badass Mofo, this is a true story. Nobody believes me. You'll never believe where I worked, where I was working at the time. God, I kind of want to guess, but I have no idea. TCBY, the frozen yogurt shop. I don't know. Okay, that's that better. Was... That's better than where I actually worked. <laughs> what? Hot Topic. Oh, shit. Okay, did you see my blank stare? Oh, no, this is a cultural disconnect. Okay, this is the place that the young goths and the punk rockers and, sorry, David, I'm going to say it. Sometimes we said the posers yeah. shopped at. It's a clothing store, and, like, that's where you go to get your wallet with a chain. And at oh. the time, you're, like... At the time, Marilyn Manson was like huge, and so the poster child of Hot Topic. Yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Okay. your Nirvana T-shirts, all that sort of stuff, and and like I think one of the only stores that's open at here in Portland at Lloyd Center Mall is Hot, still Topic, Hot Topic. Still there, and I love that I'm basically a person in a glass house throwing stone because I am currently wearing. My pleather pants. Which is did you buy Hot head Topic? to toe Hot Topic. I did not, but I could have. And yes, anyways, I love that you were working at Hot Topic when you were doing this. I see you in a whole new light. So I was always selling like vinyl pants and studded <laughs> wristbands and things like that. Um, but I was also putting together the zine. And then I, I ended up quitting Hot Topic and moving on to other things. Um, and they were all dead end jobs, but it was, it was like very much me practicing what I wanted to do, the, the sort of writing that I wanted to do. And that actually led to, believe it or not, no one, no one believes these stories, right? This is how I ended up getting the job at Willamette Week. I, um, 
Willamette Week for our listeners is Portland's longstanding alt-weekly or one of. One of. Um, and so I, I knew some of the editors there socially. I ended up pitching a story to them, which um, Zach Dundas, who you you worked with at, at and has been on the podcast, former guest of the pod. So he was a he was there, and he ended up editing a story that I wrote that I pitched them, and that was how I began uh, initially freelancing there. This was late nineties, and then by two, March two thousand, I'd come on board. They brought me on board. As uh, the, back um, when people were employed yeah. in journalism, remember? It, were you yes. doing film credit? I was, I was, I was their head film writer. That first two years, I, I wrote anything they asked me to write, yeah. which was like a lot of cheap beach reviews, there. gift guide stuff, and it was, it was more like, oh, I just want the experience. And um, the amount of gift guides I have written. Oh my God, life. they're the worst. They are so. <laughs> they're so hard because they are. you're. And then, ironically, when it comes time for you to shop for anyone, I'm like, I got nothing. Yeah, I no, just gave all my ideas to everyone else in the world. And um, and I had taken like a high school journalism class, but I'd never taken traditional journalism. Um, Was that because you? It wasn't a career that you were thinking of for yourself. Never, never occurred to me. Okay, you know, it was. It seemed like in. If I'm going to be 100% honest, in high school, there was probably a girl who was in the high school journalism class that oh, I yeah. was like really into. And that's probably why I, because that was everything I did in high school was motivated by the hot girls. The hot girls yeah. Or just girls in general. Like I was. <laughs> Chasing across just how many of us have ended up in our careers, I think. I feel like if you took a poll, it's yeah, pretty no, that's, it's It's kind of, it's it's sort of hilarious when you think about it because I was that goofy kid who like, was always hatching a plan to like how to meet girls. Like that was it. I actually totally <laughs> sidetracked. I became the assistant volleyball coach to the girls volleyball team <laughs> simply because I knew that we would go to all the other schools and I was going to, so I met like every girl who played volleyball in Portland public schools. <laughs> I see your assistant to the volleyball coach and I raise you that one year I decided to do wrestling stats for the boys wrestling team. I got to go on the bus yes. with all of the wrestlers to be the person to just write in the little notebook their their stats and watch all the boys and their wrestling singlets just wrestle each other to the ground. Do I know anything about wrestling? No, no, I knew nothing about volleyball either. I no. was just, but it, oh my Favorite god, chancers the two of you. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> we got it. We know we <laughs> zines chase and tail. Yes. Oh my god. So, but there you were at Willamette. I, there I was at Willamette Week, and you know, I I had tremendous respect for the newspaper. I still do. Um, but I also realized, oh, I should learn as much as I can about how to be a real journalist. And so I would take whatever gigs I could get or whatever assignments I could get writing for what they called, then they called it the front of the book because the book was divided in half. The front was the news, back half was entertainment. This is where I first started really developing like my imposter syndrome was at Willamette Week because I was the one person there who I honestly felt i I didn't belong, right? I, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't have a degree. I felt like I somehow scammed my way in. But I was like, I'm going to do my best to stay here and to learn and, and become the best writer that I can be, the best, if not journalist, at least investigator, the best researcher. Before um, they find me out. Yeah, before they find me yeah. I know that feeling. And, uh, but at the same time, I wanted to do 
the stuff I wanted to do, right? I wanted to write books and graphic novels and comics. And I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to do it. But I started, it was, it was in the, so were the early 2000s, we were all there. We all worked in journalism in some capacity. And you were sort of watching things die off, right? And wasn't a great time. No, it wasn't. And, and it was, I remember the first major layoffs while I was there. And I was like, oh, thank God I didn't get laid off. Oh, but wait a minute. Now I have to, instead of doing the job of one person or one and a half people, yeah, four. now I'm doing four, yep. right? Yeah. We know that tale well. Yeah. And, and so it kind of became clear to me that at some point I was either going to be one of the ones who got let go or I was going to be the ones who just didn't want to be there anymore. And, and in order to ensure that neither of those happened, I was going to have to really start chasing after the things that I wanted the most. And that was, that was writing books. I was writing graphic novels and novels and things like that. And, um, yeah. And it wasn't as easy as I'm making it sound, right? It sounds so. Oh, we know it's not. I think anybody who has had a longstanding dream knows it's not easy. Yeah. But there is a moment that you have to kind of make that conscious choice. Yes. Especially when you're working full time someplace to go, I need to start working and pursue this dream of mine. Because it's very easy when you're in a career to not put anything else to the forefront. And so you had this choice of some a book you wanted to start writing mm-hmm. on. And this this is the origin story, I think, of your next book coming out. Yes. And while I'm thinking about it, I, I, I when we were walking into the room, I saw some books on the shelves, uh, including one of Sean Levy's books. Mm-hmm. And Sean Levy is one of the key people who's really responsible for me making the leap. Mm. And Good job, Sean. And and I haven't seen Sean in several years, but I, I've known him for forever. I knew him before I started working at Willamette Week. And we were sitting around talking, and, and I think he must have been writing his, it might have been his Paul Newman book. I can't remember which one it was that he was, he was writing. And I just, I said something to him about, man, I've always wanted to write a book. And he was like, well, then just do it. And I was like, I, you know, I, I can't do that. You know, people say <laughs> yeah. that, and you're like, what? And, and he broke it down. He was like, whatever book it was that he was working on at the time, we'll say it was the Paul Newman book, although it probably wasn't. But he'll say, yeah, well, the Paul Newman book was is X number of thousands of words. And if you add up everything that you write every single year, that's that's that. You're just writing it in tiny little chunks. And he was like, you have to dedicate it to one subject matter. And we were in Park City, Utah, of all places, because we were at the Sundance Film Festival, and they have these shuttles running back and forth. And and this is where he's sort of giving me this this pep talk. And I was like, as much fun as I was having at Park City, I was like, I don't want to be doing this. I don't, you know, like, it's kind of cool that I'm here. But I, I have a ton of work I've got to do this week and I've got to hit all these deadlines. And, and I was like and, and writing about, you know, the new Adam Sandler movie is not what I want to be doing the rest That's of my life. Calling yeah. it. You're not living your authentic self with the well, Adam it's, Sandler. It's hard to say that sometimes, though, because it feels like but I'm getting to write for a living yes. and I'm getting to watch movies. And like I like both those things. So. You know, shouldn't I just feel grateful for it and just keep at it? Because it's exactly. so, and it's also in that moment of like scarcity in journalism, you're like, but I have a job in here. Yeah. And like, so that I feel like that's an act of immense bravery to take a leap out of it. And that's true. Yeah. And so, but Sean was, you know, really, I, I, I don't even know if I've ever told him the, the, the impact that that 
conversation had. Um, You're telling him now. We'll David. send it to him. I, I can give him a call too. I mean, I we him and I need to get caught up anyway. Um, it is good advice, I have to say, for all writers because the idea of writing a book or any top any huge project always feels so overwhelming and I yeah. always believe in as I call them the Eden Don mini goal mm-hmm. which is breaking you know if you're writing I 50 love the way you branded it Eden Don Eden Don <laughs> mini goal that's what we call them it was started in fashion school which it was like people would have me help them make their Eden Don mini goal for the day of what they had to do to get their pro- because it's just looking at that big bit this is the producer part of my brain of going okay, I have to write a 50,000 word book, but actually that's only, I want to take off Christmas and New Year's. So that's a thousand words a week, which breaks down real fast to like 200 words a day, Monday through Friday. Yeah. That's and, ne- and that's most a of us are, couple uh, paragraphs. if you're, if you're serious, I, 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 I want to be careful and say, well, if you're a serious writer, but the vast majority of us, if we've, if we've written professionally have hit a minimum of a thousand words in a day, right? Oh, oh easy. easily. Easily. It sounds like a lot of words. Not all the words we've written. Yeah. And and this is but this is sort of what was running through my head as Sean was explaining this to me. And so I was while all this was going on, I was trying to sell some ideas for graphic novels, for comic books. Nothing was working. But I had this idea and and it started out originally it was gonna be a comic, it was gonna be a graphic novel. And um and I started writing it and it wasn't coming together. I couldn't find an artist. And that's the that's the hardest part about working in, in comics and graphic novels is if you don't draw, you have to find an artist. And you can spend years writing something and um and it will never see the light of day. It's as it's it's as bad as writing a screenplay. In a lot of ways it's a dumb thing to do, right? Because um, if nobody wants to, if you can't find somebody it. to draw it, and it and languishes, yes, I had started writing as a graphic novel probably in two thousand five, and by two thousand six, I realized that wasn't going to work, and so I switched it over to a novel and started reading. It was I knew it was going to be a YA novel, mm-hmm. and then I spent like a tremendous amount of time reading YA books, and this was at the height of. Hunger Games, kind of. Hunger Games, the the last Harry Potter book had just come out. But I immersed myself in YA, and I just pushed. And so from 2006, 2007, I was pushing and pushing, and it it still wasn't working out. The book was not coming together. And then I left Willamette Week 2007-2008, thinked around, tried to find a a, a decent paying job, couldn't find – I found one briefly. I was working for a nonprofit – which was hell, by the way. It was like the worst thing I could possibly do. And after six months, they they like laid off everybody at this nonprofit. And lovely, you went from journalism to the nonprofit, nonprofit world. Industry. Yeah, yeah, and great choice. With, with a no with a, money to nonprofit with a temp gig at the post office in between, right? <laughs> so, um, and and during a lot of this time, I wasn't working on the book. When I got laid off from the nonprofit. I knew I was going to collect unemployment. I talked to unemployment. I was going to get it for like, I want to say three or four months, however long it was going to be. And I said, okay, I have this much time to actually write this book. I, my commitment to myself was I will not go to bed until I've written a minimum of a thousand words a day. And I realized that that was a tough commitment to keep because it would be like 11 o'clock at night. And I was like, oh, I didn't do my writing tonight. And so- yeah. So then I, I switched over and started writing during the day. And in 30 days, I finished the book. 
Holy Whoa! Shit. Um, I, Wait, was that? It was more than thirty thousand words. Or was it only? No, the 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 initial first draft that I finished was about one hundred and twenty thousand words. Okay. One hundred and thirty seems quite. It was, it was huge. Novel. Oh You're my going god! For yeah. a war and peace kind of a YA. <laughs> oh, it was. This is first draft though. Okay, this is first fair, draft. Fair. And so I wrapped that up in 2010. Can you give us a one liner about it? What or do we want to hold on for the reveal? Well, we'll hold on for the reveal. Okay. So he's a storyteller. Yeah. Um. So I finished this thing. I know some people in in the film industry. I reached out to a couple of them and I said, you know, I I don't know how to get a book deal. Can you help me? And I sent the manuscript to a friend of mine who's a producer. And he said, I'll help you get an agent if you sign a shopping agreement with me, meaning he really liked the manuscript. And he said, I'll help you find an agent, help you find a publisher, but I want the rights, the film Film rights, the film option rights. So, okay. So we signed an agreement that was going to be like. That's really promising. Did you feel kind of validated? I did. Yeah. And, and so he, he, uh, through, through my friend, I got an agent and it was rejected everywhere. It was, um. It's part of the process, I hear. Yeah. And it was, (laughs) we kept hearing the same thing because my lead character was a, was a, uh, African-American teenage boy. Boys don't read. African-American teen boys don't read. We kept hearing all of these, these negative you know, things, a couple, you know, publishers said, you know, if you're willing to change your character to a girl, we'll consider it. And I was like, what? and I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, good for you, David. Um, that's wild to me. Yeah. That it's that wild was, in the context of today to imagine that happening. I mean, I and just, this was, you know, so this is 2010, 2009, 2010, that this was going on. And God, I can't remember who the agent, what the agent's name was at this point, but he was getting really discouraged. And you know when, if, if, I don't know if either of you have agents at this point. I got to skip ahead because I yeah. just went directly to my publisher for okay. it, and it was nonfiction and they picked it up. Um, I don't have an agent, but I am available to be agent <laughs> by anybody who's out there. Well, so it's, it's easier to get an agent if you get a publishing deal than it is to get an agent to get you a publishing deal. It's the weirdest. I always weirdest, thought it was the other way around. It's, it's. Um, Publishing is very confusing. It's, it's super confusing. And so um, my agent was getting really discouraged, and I'm giving him these pep talks. Richard was his name. You were pep talking the agent. And I was like, hey, I man, don't give up. It's, it's all right. you know. And we were getting the crazy, some of the, we were getting three and four rejections from publishers, right? Like, like three editors at the same publishing house would send us these rejections, and they'd be like, well, I don't think I can do anything with it, but I'm passing it on to this other person. And so th- there was, they were these weird rejections with these almost like caveats to them. And it was like, people liked the book, but they yeah, didn't know I what to do with it. I see something here, but it's not maybe for me, but there's something kind of thing. It also just feels rude to get rejected in multiple ways. And from people you didn't even query. I feel like that's <laughs> like a guy coming up to me at the bar and being like, I'm not really attracted to you. I, I don't want to ask you out. And you're like. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't ask I you. wasn't flirting with you. Why? I was just standing here waiting for my rum and coke, and you, yeah. Oh man. So, um, so I I made the decision I was going to self publish the book, and which I did, and self publishing is not, you know, because I'd done it with the zines, right? But it's a completely different world. Yeah. And I had like. And what was that world like in 2010 as well? I mean, how did you do that? I went through, um, oh God, 
Amazon had a had a service that you could go through. And I hired somebody to, you know, do some copy editing for me, but I didn't hire a real editor. I couldn't really afford that. Um, no, we're very expensive. Yeah, and I and I spent a lot of money getting an, a really nice cover design, and I hired somebody to you know put everything together. Um, and I sold a few units, but not a lot. Nothing. It did. It wasn't earth shattering. It wasn't going to change my life. Was um, it print on demand, or did you have a, a box full in your basement? I did. I, it was print on demand, but I did have a box full. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then while that happened, as as I was trying to make that happen. I got a big break in the comics world, and and suddenly, oh, I have I have a career. I've I've written this YA book that's going nowhere, but I it was a smaller comic publishing company offered me a gig. I took it, and that rapidly led to work first for DC Comics, then for Marvel Comics, and then suddenly, the real career that I'd wanted, even this the, the book. The YA book that I'd written was originally supposed to be a graphic novel. Suddenly I had this career that I, 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 I'd worked for it, but I, you know, you, sometimes you just sort of like, it's, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I'm not going to quit, but I'm going to keep going. But uh, what if it doesn't happen? What, you know, like it's that, what if the self doubt, you know, nagging away in your head. And, and so this is the sort of humble brag. I became, kind of a rock star in the comic world. Yeah, you did. Right? You did. Um, and so while I was working at Marvel DC, all those places, I never had, you don't need an agent in the comics world. They, nobody deals with agents. But I got a um, call one day, or I got an email from a public, from an editor at a publisher, uh, 10 Speed Press, and they do oh, graphic yeah. novels. And 10 Speed, the, the editor, a guy named Patrick, said, I'm a big fan of your work. We're exploring more nonfiction stuff. Would you be interested in doing a book about Frederick Douglass? And I wow. was like, sure. You know, I heard he's <laughs> becoming more and more popular. These exactly. Days. <laughs> so, um, so I said, okay, yeah, no, I, I would love to do that. So that meant I needed to get an agent. And so I called around to some people that I knew and said, yeah, I need an agent to negotiate this contract for me because I'm not doing this on my own. Yeah, that's a good word of advice for people as well. Like that's part of the role of the agent is to make sure they get a good deal for the writers. And it's really hard to do that without. Yes. But I already, so I had the offer. And so I was introduced to, um, his name's Alex. Uh, We had a brief exchange. We got on the phone. I said, look, the, the deal's here. I just need to make sure I don't get screwed on this. He was like, okay. And so then we kind of hit it off. It turns out that like, He's his his office. His company is in New York City, but he lives in Connecticut. He lives right near where like I grew where I grew up in Connecticut. Um, And then 10 speed, I got like two more book deals with them through Alex. And Alex kept saying, well, what else do you have? What else do you have? And I said, I don't really have anything. And he was like, anybody he he wouldn't shut up. Right. He was like, what else do you have? Yeah, good agent. Um, and so I said, well, I've got this YA book that was rejected by everybody. Now, what, what year are we in? Just to establish myself as a timeline. So now yeah. we are in, I'm going to say about 2019. So it's, okay, it's been, so it's, like a full... It's nearly 10 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since it came since out. Since That's amazing. Since I self-published, yeah. Wow. The world has evolved somewhat. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, maybe now people don't think that 
all young black children yeah. <laughs> don't read or boys specifically don't read. And yeah. And, and so I, I said to Alex, I said, I've got this YA novel. I'll send it to you. I said, no one's going to want this thing. I sent it to him and he goes, he gets back to me. He's like, this is really solid. He's like, it needs a fair amount of work. You need an editor, but you know, I think you could make this work. And I foolishly said, yeah, no, I don't think so. David, so, <laughs> talk about self-sabotage. He was like, nah. I'm the king of it, right? So Alex, to his credit, hired somebody to to read the book and give it just a, some minor editorial Polish. Notes. The polish, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the polish that would be needed to take it out to Scholastic and to, you know, Penguin Random House and to Little Brown and to all these publishers that had rejected it. Had said it. no. Yeah. Every single one. Like... This is not an exaggeration. Every single major book publisher in North America had rejected the book back in 2010, 2011. You know what this is? This is in the movie when you were always the hot girl, but you're wearing glasses, yeah, so yeah. they can't tell. <laughs> and this is your moment that somebody came Take up and took down. your yeah took took your hair out of a ponytail and took your glasses off, and then all the publishers like slow motion turned to you and they're like, "Oh my God, who is that?" So I spent few months going over the notes that Alex had sent and every now and then he'd send an email what are you going to do with this thing so I finally I do another polish on the book I give it to him and I'm like all right take it out and I but I but and one of the things he said to me and this was really crucial he said when you wrote this book this genre did not exist and he said you created a genre that now is well established and well entrenched. He said, you were ahead of your time and you paid that price. And he was like, there's no reason for you to continue to beat yourself up over the fact that you were ahead of your time. That was sort of what prompted me wow. to go. I love Alex. That's a wonderful pep talk. And yeah. true. And also a great lesson for all writers. Yeah. Of like the content might always be good and the timing is wrong. It's a it, real thing. Exactly. And the, t- the wrong timing is not your fault. It's those stupid publishers. No offense, publishers. And, 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 but also, I was discounting what I had done in the 10 years since I had written the book and the name that I'd made for myself in this other <laughs> world and... Um, You're a rock star. So we, he was like, okay, we're going to send it out. And then like four days later, we got an offer from Scholastic. Four days after all the time you spent shopping at Red, and did you show them their original rejection letter? I didn't because I couldn't find them. Like I, I, all the, they were all emails and things like that. I could not find them. It's also a weird way to start a working relationship. And, and <laughs> if you're like, but it was all new people, right? It's of 10 course. years later. Yeah, of course. And, um, and so then I, I spent, oh God, I don't know, like it was, I was working on so many other projects at the time, but I, I spent about six months doing, rewriting, not the entire book, but I, I probably rewrote about 25 to 30% of the book. Um, and now it's coming out. According to the notes that this editor That the editor gave, gave. yeah. Which when you read them, were you like, oh, yes. No, there were some that had me really pissed off. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. No, there were some. um, Because I'm that guy. I'm that guy who every note you could tell, you could write and say, look, I before E, except after C, unless it sounds like A. And I'll be like, oh, no, I don't care if it's that. I don't care where. That's not how I do it. (laughs) I I believe that the punctuation mark should always be this way. Um, But I also have grown enough over the years to know that that's sort of my... Mo and so rather than shouting and screaming, I just 
read the notes, then I walk away for a day or two, then I come back and read them again and really carefully consider them. And, and I was like, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. And I sat down and there was the, the, the 25 to 30% that I had to rewrite was like really serious rewrites. All new characters were brought in. There's my favorite chapter, my absolute favorite chapter in the book I had to cut. Oh, and I knew I had to cut rough. it beforehand. I knew that yeah. it didn't belong, but nobody told me it didn't belong. So I was like, well, nobody says anything. And and my editor was like, this is a great chapter. It doesn't belong. And, and I was like, oh, you're oh, right. Yeah. So um, don't you hate it that you secretly know? I've had that, too, where you're like, I like this thing. I kind of know it's not right. But you just like hope you'll sneak it by. It's it's when this is what happens when we're not being honest and true. Yep. You know, and and um and and we're not listening to the characters and we're not listen and we're trying to force the the square peg into the round hole and and I and I took this opportunity and I was like I'm you know, I'm not going to be so ego driven to think that I know everything. And and because it's been a long time since I've read a YA book. I mean, I I spent I'm going to say between 2007 and 2011 for sure and that about that four-year time span, I read everything. But I hadn't read anything can really contemporary in quite some time. And the genre has expanded. It's changed so, so much. much. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting now. I read a lot of YA now, and I, it, it's nothing like the offering that, well, certainly nothing like the offering we had when we were lasses and laddies and whatever. No, I think of A Wrinkle in Time and, and yeah, Babysitter's yeah. Club. Those are my... But there's, it's astonishing what's out there now it's really exciting actually yeah yeah so in some ways i'm kind of like you're actually up against far more competition now than you would have been back in the day so it's such a testament to your work that it got it, it, in some ways i think gosh it feels like it would be even harder to be have it picked up now because why has really established itself it, it has and and so the book i wrote um at the time the title was uh super justice force the the adventures of darius logan it's about a teenage kid gets in trouble with the law and but rather than going into and he's about to be tried as a as an adult and he's going to go to prison as an adult but he's given the option of either going to prison or going into a, a rehab program for criminals that's run by a team of superheroes <gasps> wow i'm all in and and so um so it's all about this kid darius and he's he's the youngest person, and the program is called Second Chance, and it's run by Super Justice Force. Everybody who works in Second Chance are former criminals, ranging from like the most notorious supervillains to petty car thieves, right? Oh, I love this supervillains. Yeah, and he's but he's the only person. He's the youngest person in the program, but he's also like the he's he hasn't done any real time in prison like so it's like it's all about how they're trying to make this program work proactively as opposed to reactively right so he's the grand experiment and he becomes friends with all these superheroes and then he becomes friends with all these supervillains and then he falls in love and um you know and that's that's all i'll tell you about the story itself right and um and so yeah the you know the the book there there's a point where scholastic said yeah this title doesn't work and I was like, what do you mean this title doesn't work? Yeah, what you know, do you, you know, know? Yeah. I'm out. <laughs> but I didn't say that. And I said, okay, well, why don't you give me some titles that you think work? Everything they threw out didn't work. 
And and I was like, I didn't know what to do. And and then one day I was, you know, this is like two months ago, three months ago. Um, my editor was like, okay, you, we need a title. And and you're going to have to justify it, right? Or we're going to use one of these ones, right? And so I was like, the second chance of Darius Logan. And my editor was like, huh. And I said, okay, you know, first of all, second chance yeah. is the program that he goes into. Yeah. It's but the book is chance. it's also about his second chance and I said but it's also about this book and oh, my career second chance. Oh, wow. Works on all the levels. Yeah. And so they they agreed to it and and that's where we are. And it's funny because as the old man in the room and I'm the old man in every room that I go into, right? And I talk to like these 20 somethings and when I'm teaching at PSU they're like I just don't know if I'm ever going to get a break and did it. I'm like yeah, you may not. So what you do is you create your own breaks and you just keep plugging away. And, you know, I was I was never going to give up as a writer. I'd given up on the book, this particular book. My agent talked me out of it, right? But I was always going to keep writing. I'm always going to keep writing. And, um, you know, and now when I look at it, and just the other day, I was I was going over some notes and I was looking at the cover and I was like, oh, man, this is like... It's a weird thing. It's a very because when we when we're talking about something now that 2006, 2007 is when I started it, so we're coming up on 20 years later. And and there's moments when I sit down and look at it and I'm like, I can't believe I wrote this, right? And and then and I'm reading the notes from my editor and she's like, "Oh my god, this scene is so amazing." And I'm like, "Yeah, I wrote that, didn't I?" <laughs> That's a good thing with distance in yeah, some ways. It all feels new. It's funny as well because it um, what you said just reminded me. I remember years and years ago um, going to a talk with Doris Les Lessing, who's a novelist, and I think she went on to win the Nobel or something like that, like a really big deal writer. And the one thing that stuck in my mind, she said, was that um, many writers make the mistake of being so attached to this one book mm -hmm. that they they refuse to write anything else. And so they, they have the one book, they shop it around, they shop it around, they shop it around forever, and then they give up because they're like, yeah. well, that one book, that was the book, and it didn't make it. And she's like, put it in a drawer and move on. She didn't say, and move on, and 20 years later, it will be a massive <laughs> success. But you had you kept writing in the interim, which was kind of part of the process, right? It feels very inspiring, which I like, again, yeah. for our season finale, because to end on this hopefulness, I, I think, seems really nice. I mean, I think it, that's a great story. And to me, that, that sort of trajectory from, you know, and the fact that you persevered in the meantime, it's not like you had this one book and you were like, well, that didn't work. 20 million people rejected it. I love that somebody who rejected it picked it up 20 years later and is now pushing it it's so beautiful. hard and is so excited about it. No, it's it's it, it, like if you're not going to believe in yourself, no one else is going to believe in you. And as writers and creators, we suffer from imposter syndrome and self-loathing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But we also, there has to come a moment where we have to say, look, Either you want this or you don't. And and why are you doing this? You're, you, you're not writing for the publishing deal or the money so much as you're writing because there's a story that you have to tell. And that story, I do believe, comes to us from somewhere, right? Idea says, I picked you mm, to tell this story. I like that. And if you don't tell the story, someone else is eventually going to tell it. They won't tell it the same way you t tell yeah. it. They might not tell it as well, but they're still going to do it. 
And we've all known those people that are like, I had that idea for yep, that book. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. I know. And that's, yeah, and then they're bitter forever. Yeah. But that is a lovely way to think about it. And to, like, don't ignore it. When that idea picks you, like, you got to get it out there. Oh, it's, Just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's honestly a gift when the idea comes to you. And you just, it's what you do with it. And to not ignore that gift. And I love that the hot guy. (laughs) I love that the hot guy came crawling back. The hot guy came crawling back. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uh, Well, thank you so much, David. I think that's a great story. But it is a lovely, inspiring story, and I'm excited about it because it is something I think that writers need to hear: is to keep on it. And when the idea picks you, I like that. 